0: Good morning everybody. So good to see you today and I'm Pastor Jim if I hadn't had the privilege of meeting you yet just want to welcome you as well today and I just have to say a little aside if any of you have had any problems signing up for the reservations to uh, get a seat in one of the services just come anyway. I had several people this weekend say you know I I thought the nine o'clock service was full because I went online and I, I couldn't get a seat and so The 9 o'clock service wasn't full, so there must have been some glitch going on. So if that happens to you, just come. We we want you to be here more than anything. So welcome. Glad you're here. We are continuing our study today in the book of 2 Thessalonians. I invite you to grab a Bible and open it up to 2 Thessalonians today. Today brings us to chapter 2. And I have been so looking forward to this chapter because of my great love for Bible prophecy. See, this chapter, and specifically the first 12 verses of chapter 2, are key to understanding the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture of the church. Plus, this chapter just helps us understand some of the crazy things that uh, we're going through in our world today, and so it's such an encouraging chapter for those reasons. This chapter contains some very familiar truths that we see in other chapters, other parts of the Bible, but it also reveals some brand new truths that we don't see anywhere else. So it's a super important chapter for us to understand as it relates to future events. And as we talk today about Bible prophecy, I want to remind you just a little bit about prophecy and its importance. So Jesus referred to his rapture and his second coming at least 21 times in the Gospels, So very, very important to him that we understand these truths. And every time the Bible actually mentions, for every time the Bible mentions the first advent of Christ, there are at least eight references to the rapture and the second coming of Christ. So just that too just highlights the importance of these things. God's people, we are exhorted to be ready for the return of Christ over 50 times in the word of God. And almost 30% of God's word is prophetic. That's a lot. You know, applying the law of proportion alone, Bible prophecy warrants our serious study. To disregard over almost 30% of the Bible or even to minimize that much of it would be foolish indeed. So this chapter that we're diving into today is a chapter where Paul deals with some doctrinal error. Some errors that the church of Thessalonia was dealing with. Someone had deceived them into thinking that they'd missed out on the rapture and that they were already living in the day of the Lord. And so Paul wrote this letter to deal with this crisis of faith, to deal with that problem. So let's begin by looking at the crisis of faith. And it's a crisis to them because this false teaching had crept into their church. Apparently someone claiming to be Paul had written this counterfeit letter To their church, and in that forged epistle, the author had told the believers there that they were facing persecution and trouble because they were already living in the tribulation. So, this spurious letter threw the Thessalonians into some confusion, and so Paul's responding to that confusion and distress. So, let's begin by reading the first couple of verses. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this section that uh, Paul wrote by the inspiration of your spirit to the Thessalonians. Please open our hearts and our minds to grasp it. Please speak to us about how to live it out today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul introduces the subject of chapter 2 with these words, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. That raises the question right off the bat. Is he talking about the rapture of the church or is he talking about the second coming of Christ? Two distinct events. And as we'll see in a minute, the wording that Paul uses here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is almost identical to the wording that he used in his first epistle, 1 Thessalonians, uh, or to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2 are almost identical. And uh, the, first cha- the first letter, he was describing the rapture, and that's why I believe he is here as well. <clears throat> so my view personally, and the teaching position of Lake City Community Church, which I'm presenting to you today, is that Christ will come and rapture his church before the tribulation begins. Just want to get that out there from the outset. And so Paul begins with this exhortation. He says, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed. Don't be quickly shaken or alarmed. And the construction of that sentence in the Greek language Paul was writing in indicates this is a very personal and a very intimate exhortation. Basically, he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you, we beg you, don't be shaken and alarmed in your faith. So it suggests Paul's personal concern and care for his friends in Thessalonica and also his desire to build up their faith. So again, I want to highlight the specific error that caused their crisis, and it was that they thought they had missed the rapture. They thought they had missed out on the rapture. The false teaching that they had received was that they were in the day of the lord in other words the reason for their suffering their persecution and affliction was that the tribulation had begun now i believe the reason the thessalonians were so upset and so shaken was that paul had taught them clearly that the rapture would precede the tribulation in other words this is on your notes if you haven't found your notes already you can grab them on the tables in the foyer you can open them up on your app I believe that it's clear the Thessalonians expected to be raptured before the tribulation. And so Paul's writing to them and he's assuring them, no, what I taught you is right. You're correct to expect that order of events. In other words, they were pre-trib. That's because that's what Paul taught them. I've used the word rapture several times now. So I want to say a few things about this biblical doctrine that's so important to us. It's my belief that the rapture of the church is the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. However, there's differences of opinion on that. You probably understand that. And if you don't happen to agree with us on that view, with me on that view, please know I'm not offended by that at all. I think it's sad you don't have that hope, but that doesn't offend me. All right? Okay. By the way, it is also not a matter that needs to divide us as God's children. Okay. please know that uh, it's not a test of fellowship here. It's not an issue that divides us. We can still serve together and love each other and fellowship together as God's children. But I do want you to understand what we teach and believe. So the word rapture in the English is the English translation of the Greek word harpazo. Can You say that with me, harpazo, harpazo. That That word means to snatch up, to catch away or to take up suddenly. And Harpazo appears 13 times in the New Testament. Here's a great definition of what we mean by Harpazo, the rapture. The rapture of the church, which is the first phase of Christ's coming, is the resurrection of the dead, specifically only believers, and the transformation of living believers. So let me stop right there. I want you to notice this affects two different groups. The rapture affects those who are dead in Christ, those who have Trusted Christ would have died, but it also affects those who are living believers, okay? So those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected, and those who are alive when Christ comes back will be transformed, okay? So it affects both. Okay, let's continue. The rapture of the church, whoops, they will be immediately... Let's go to the next one. I'm sorry, my bad. They will be immediately in Jesus' glorious presence, and he will escort them to heaven to live with him forever. All right. So that's the definition of the rapture. I'm going to show you a chart now to show you where it fits in time-wise. Okay. So this is a chart of biblical events and we are living right here in the church age. So after the cross uh, is this period of time, a couple of thousand years now that we call the age of grace or the church age. That will come to a conclusion at the rapture and the arrow doesn't come down all the way to the line. There's a You turn there because Christ is going to meet his church in the air to live with him in heaven. And shortly after that begins the great tribulation, a period of seven years of judgment where God is dealing with particularly the nation of Israel and bringing them to faith, but also judging the world. That ends with the second coming of Christ. So the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two distinct events separated by some seven years. And then the millennial reign of Christ on earth. That ends with a period of uh, the new heavens and the new earth are created, and then we enter into eternity future. So that gives you a bit of a, a time reference to what we're talking about in terms of the rapture. And by the way, there are three primary passages in the New Testament that deal with the rapture. You might jot these down so you can check them out. They're John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4. John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4. So at this point, I want to go back and I want to read from 1 Thessalonians 4, because that's the background to what Paul writes here in his second letter to the Thessalonians. So let's read the background passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. Here we go. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. In other words, this is a divine revelation that the Lord gave to Paul. The we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, which means those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, back up at the top, notice in the second line there, that's verse 17, it says that we will be caught up together. Caught up is the English translation of the word harpazo. And uh, harpazo is the Greek word. It was translated uh, by, by Jerome into the Latin Vulgate with the word rapturo. That's where we get our English word rapture from but it means to catch up, to to snatch away. All right, so it's clear from this passage we just read that the Thessalonians thought that Christ was going to return for them during their lifetime. And so when members in their church and people they knew who loved the Lord began to die, they thought something was wrong. They thought they, they missed out somehow on the rapture. So Paul's writing to correct that misconception. And Paul's reminding them in 2 Thessalonians, which is where we are today, of what he taught them back here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. And the word coming that we read a minute ago in verse 15 is the exact same word. It's parousia that introduces our text today in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe it's very clear because the wording is so similar that Paul is speaking in our passage today about the very same thing he was speaking about here in chapter four of first Thessalonians. And that's the rapture of the church. But all of this raises a question. How did they get confused in the first place? Or what's the source of their confusion that he's writing to correct? OK, the false teaching that they had missed the rapture and that they were living in the tribulation naturally had a devastating impact on them and their, their view of things, okay? Paul described it as a shaking or a, a, an alarming thing to them. And that word shaken that Paul used there to describe what they were experiencing it, is a Greek word that describes a ship that's torn away from the docks, torn away from its moorings because of strong winds and waves. What that... Reminds me of is something like this, this picture here, the pictures that we see after a big storm hits. You know, the last major hurricane to hit our country was in August of last year, and it was called Hurricane Dorian. Maybe you remember it. Relatively minor as far as hurricanes go, but it was still a Cat 5 storm, and it packed winds up to 183 miles an hour. So it was a biggie. It did $5 billion in damages and killed something like 84 people. It was especially hard on the Bahamas where scenes like this were so common. And so that's the word, that's the image that Paul gives us. I don't want you to be shaken and so devastated in your faith. Okay, and so he says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be untethered from your moorings. And then I want you to notice that next Paul describes in verse 2, three specific sources of that dangerous air that they were dealing with. Three sources. The first one, he says, is by a spirit. And I believe that refers to the claim that someone had given that, that they had a prophetic utterance, okay? That's typically how that's used. A, the gift of prophecy would somehow sometimes be used in churches and, and used in that sense, and so In this case, basically what Paul is saying is that that was a false prophecy. Don't be shaken by it. The second source of dangerous error Paul talks about here, he says, or by a spoken word. So that's a different thing than a prophetic word. The way that that is used commonly is more of just a spoken opinion of someone in their church. And so disinformation doesn't have to be coming in the form of a prophetic uh, word. And the third source of dangerous error that Paul refers to in verse 2 is or a letter seeming to be from us. So evidently, someone had forged a letter claiming that it was for Paul and his associates and either sent it or delivered it to the church in Thessaloniki. And it clearly, what that letter taught clearly contradicted what Paul had taught them when he was with them and what he wrote them in his first letter. Now, the precise nature of that false teaching, Paul says, is this, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Literally, the Greek text says that the day of the Lord is present. In other words, these people, these false teachers, were teaching, you know, Paul was wrong, the rapture doesn't come first, and we are presently in the day of the Lord. And that was the crisis of their faith. That's the cause for it, okay? Okay. And now he gives them the cause for hope. He corrects that error. And the cause for hope is this. He he explains to them about the day of the Lord and what's really going to happen. So let's talk about the day of the Lord and let's begin with a definition. For example, here's a definition of the day of the Lord by Dr. Charles Ryrie. He says, the day of the Lord is an extended period of time, beginning with the tribulation and including the events of the second coming of Christ, and the millennial kingdom on earth. It will begin unexpectedly like a thief in the night. So I'm going to go back to the chart and show you what he's talking about. Dr. Ryrie says the day of the Lord is this period of time right here. And uh, it's this period of judgment on the earth here. But it also, he says, includes the blessing of the millennial reign. And then a uh, there'll be a time of judgment at the end of that as well. So. What I think about the day of the Lord is that it's it's used a little bit flexibly um, in the scriptures. It's a flexible term, but primarily the day of the Lord refers to God's judgment. Okay, I think here in Second Thessalonians that Paul is likely speaking primarily about this period of judgment called the Great Tribulation, that seven year period. So now let's see how Paul seeks to give them hope as it relates to this. All right. Let's read verse three. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So his explanation actually begins with another short exhortation. Let no one deceive you in any way. So that serves both as a, a note of caution and a summary of what he's just written in the first two verses. And then Paul mentions two things that will mark the day of the Lord. Notice these. Two things will mark the day of the Lord. Paul doesn't tell us who is doing this this deceiving, but when we get down to verse 9 next week, we're going to see that ultimately it's Satan himself that's behind the deception. But I want you to notice the order here. The rapture of the church occurs, and then sometime afterwards the tribulation begins, And the tribulation is going to be marked by two specific things, according to verse 3. By the way, next week we're going to see a third thing that marks this period, this tribulation, when we get down to verses 6 and 7. But for today, I just want to focus on these first two that Paul describes in verse 3. Please understand the reasoning here. Paul is saying, you know, absent these two things, you know you're not in the day of the Lord. Okay? So what are these two indicators or marks? Number one is this. The rebellion or the apostasy. The rebellion or the apostasy. Paul says the first thing that is noticeable about the day of the Lord will be this widespread, this worldwide rebellion against God. And the Greek word that Paul used is apostasia. We get apostasy, the English word, from that. And it is one of the signs of the end times. Indeed, Jesus himself mentioned this as one of the signs of the last days in his Olivet Discourse. This is what Jesus said. He said, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, the word apostasia that Paul uses here is used in two ways, or it was in his day, okay? Either of a political rebellion against a king or of a religious rebellion against God. And In this case, probably both are in mind. F.F. F. Bruce summarizes it like this. Since the reference here is to a worldwide rebellion against divine authority at the end of the age, the ideas of political revolt and religious apostasy are combined. Notice also that Paul used in verse 3 the definite article, the, in front of the word apostasy. The apostasy would suggest it was something specifically that he had already taught them about. Okay? I think what Paul is saying is this. Look around. The full-scale apostasy that I taught you about isn't happening yet. So you know that we're not in the day of the Lord yet. So J. Dwight Pentecost was uh, one of my teachers at Dallas Seminary. Here's how he describes it, and I quote. It shows that men are departing from the faith. He's talking about the word apostasy. Men are departing from the faith, which is what that word means. Not only do they doubt the word of God, they openly reject it. This phenomenon has never been as prevalent as today. This open, deliberate, willful repudiation of the truth of the Bible is described in scripture as one of the major characteristics of the last days of the church on earth. Listen, the apostasy that we see in the church today, and we see it all over the place today, people rejecting God's word and trying to reinterpret God's word. The apostasy that we see today foreshadows the final falling away that will break out, especially as the tribulation begins that Paul describes here in verse 3. We may not be experiencing the full-blown apostasy that Paul's talking about here in the tribulation, but we are experiencing the prelude, the build-up to it right now. So deepening apostasy is a sign of our times, both morally and doctrinally. And that's the first mark. That Paul gives of the day of the Lord here's the second one the second mark of the day of the Lord is the man of lawlessness is revealed the man of lawlessness is revealed and that word lawlessness if you think about it could be a caption below much of the news that we are watching and hearing about in our country today What began, for example, as a legitimate protest against the death of George Floyd has been hijacked by lawless people and turned into a destroy America movement. Violent riots have replaced legitimate protests and Antifa seems to be behind much of it. But lawlessness is a great one-word description of what's happening in many places in our country today. And by the way, Jesus, too, mentioned lawlessness, this same word, as one of the signs of the end of the age. You know, throughout history, there has always been evil people who were glad to do Satan's work. Paul's concern at this point, what he's writing here to the Thessalonians, is not about evil people in general. His focus is upon the most infamous one of all, one who will appear in the last days, And though Paul doesn't use the term Antichrist here, that's clearly who he had in mind. That term, that title Antichrist is given to this person by the Apostle John in his epistles and in the Revelation. So what Paul writes here is this detailed description of what happens after the rapture of the church and when the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. But please look down to verse 7 for a minute. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 7. And I want you to notice Paul also says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Key phrase. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And I believe that what we are experiencing in our country today is also the mystery of lawlessness ramping up toward that day. So again, I'm not saying we're in the tribulation What I'm saying is that the lawlessness in our world today is increasing and it's setting the stage for the lawless one to come on the scene and offer a solution which will be in the form of a one world government. All right. What's Paul saying again to the Thessalonians? He's saying, listen, you can't be in the tribulation because these marks of the day of the Lord aren't present yet. Those marks again are A worldwide apostasy and the revelation of the lawless one or the Antichrist. Now, although Paul was not discussing the timing of the rapture per se, the implication is that the rapture will occur before both of those. He's taught that clearly to them in his first letter. And beloved, that is such good news for us to uh, just dwell on for a moment before we move on. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe we won't be here to see the antichrist or if we do see him we'll we'll maybe see him early in his career before he really gets into his full-blown mode of evil okay this also means that we don't have to worry about the mark of the beast since it's the antichrist who is going to bring that about when he comes into power So Paul goes on now to tell us more of what we need to know about this person, the man of lawlessness. So let's read his description of him in verses 4 and 5. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So a little subtle reminder there. Hey, I told you this. Don't you remember what I taught you? And I want you to notice, especially that phrase, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. That man, that Antichrist, will likely be on the scene before the rapture of the church. But at that point, he will likely be a peaceful political leader. He may even be on the scene today. Okay. Okay but at some point he's gonna unite 10 nations of Europe into this very strong power block. He's gonna bring a a brief time of peace to the world as the tribulation begins. He's gonna sign a peace treaty or a covenant with Israel and temporarily solve the Middle East crisis. In fact, that is actually the beginning of what we call the tribulation, that seven year period is the signing of that covenant, that peace treaty. Now, in these two verses we just read, Paul's drawing on some very familiar Old Testament language and imagery to describe this person, this Antichrist. And he especially correlates him to what Daniel wrote about him in Daniel chapter 9. Now, I want you to notice that Paul says that the Antichrist sits in the temple, that he sits in the temple. What's that about? Well, since Antichrist is empowered, energized by Satan it should be no surprise that he wants everyone to worship him. That has always been Satan's goal. And to do that, he's going to establish, we, we learned this in Revelation 17, he's going to establish a one-world religion, worldwide religion, and both here in 2 Thessalonians and in Daniel, it says that he's going to demand that the world worship him and him alone. So let's read that verse in Daniel 9. Daniel 9, 27 says this, the ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. That's the seven years, Daniel's 70th week. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So Daniel says, you know, the Antichrist is going to come. He's going to sign that peace treaty, that covenant with Israel. But halfway through the tribulation, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to break that treaty. The question is, what happens or or why does that come about or how does that come about? Well, he's going to stop the Jews from worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. It says that he's going to bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. And the reason is he's going to go into the temple in Jerusalem and he's going to declare that he is God and that from now on everyone worship him alone. It's the famous abomination of desolation passage that Jesus referred to in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Remember, Jesus gave his disciples a list of signs of the end of the age and this is what he says in verse 15. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Jesus said that, okay? Different views, but I believe that a future temple is going to be built in Jerusalem in order for these events to take place that we're reading about here. By the way, I want you to understand that the Jews are all ready to go with that. I don't know if you realize that or not, but they are ready to go and start building the temple. When we were in Israel about a year ago, last May, a year, year ago May, we visited a place called the Temple Institute in the old city of Jerusalem. Here's a picture of it. This is the front door of the Temple Institute, and that's not the angel Moroni there. That's a priest calling people to worship with a, with a trumpet, all right? And uh, if you want to have some fun, I, I encourage you to write down Temple Institute Jerusalem and to look up and see the pictures they have of the third temple they're ready to build, see all of the implements and everything that they have ready to go to start building the temple. The furnishings, the articles, the clothing, everything is prepared. Please don't miss my point, okay? The Lord predicted all of these things were going to come. OK, and I see no reason not to take it all literally. Every really, I believe this will be as well. In fact, I love the way that God uh, speaks about prophecy to us in Isaiah 46. Listen to this. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass for I do whatever I wish. Isn't that Great. I am God, there's none like me, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Listen, Bible prophecy proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign over all of history. He controls the events in our world. He controls nations coming and going and rising in power. He controls, he's in charge of what is involved in every person's life and what a comfort and encouragement it is to us to know that God has his hands in every one of our lives but back to the main idea now here is Paul's point he's saying to the Thessalonians you've not missed out on the rapture because none of this has begun to happen okay the false teachers were saying you know you're in the day of the lord and that's why all of the suffering and persecution of course, that meant they would have missed out on the rapture. And to prove that could po- not possibly be true, Paul lists off what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. And he says, see, these things aren't happening yet. So you have nothing to fear. You have not missed out on the rapture at all. And friend, you know, if, if that error hadn't crept into the church of Thessalonia, and had Paul not written this letter to them to correct that error, There are some things here that we would not have known, not have understood about the rapture and about the tribulation. So this is a super important and encouraging passage for us to understand. So let's close with some application. I have four next steps for you today. And the first one is this. I will pursue a steadfast hope in Christ. I will pursue a steadfast hope in Christ. Maybe you're a little confused about the end times. I want to remind you of some great reasons to study Bible prophecy. I have five of them for you. There's many more, but here's the first one. It gives us hope. It fills our life with hope. Secondly, it protects us against false teaching. Third, it gives us a proper perspective in life. It helps us understand what we're going through here today. Fourth, it helps us understand the rest of the Bible. Listen, 30% of the Bible was prophetic. It helps us understand the rest of the Bible when we understand That 30%. And then fifth, it reminds us that God is sovereign over time and history. And how encouraging that is. And you know, even young Christians, I believe, need to study Bible prophecy. Think about this. Paul was with the Thessalonians less than a year, but he did not shy away from teaching them about these things. He understood how important it was and how foundational it is to an unwavering faith. Friend, if you haven't had much time to study prophecy, I want to encourage you to pick up one of my favorite books on the subject. It's simply called The End. It's written by Mark Hitchcock, who teaches uh, eschatology at at, at, uh, Dallas Seminary, my alma mater. It's a great investment of just 18 bucks, and it will help you pursue a steadfast hope in Christ. All right, here's next step, number two. I will encourage others as the day of his return approaches. Encourage others as the day of Christ's return draws near. Listen, beloved, we're talking about truths we all need to understand and take hope in, especially in these days. We really do. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of this. And I've been really thinking about this passage a lot in the last month or so. Hebrews 10 says this. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Beloved, the day of his return is drawing near. And that's why God tells us don't stop meeting together you need it now more than ever is what he's saying you know some people would try to stop us from meeting as a church I believe we need to meet now more than ever the day of his return is drawing near we need to encourage one another we need to motivate one another to love and good works especially in these days and friend, speaking to you, especially that are uh, watching online right now, if you're not comfortable coming back to church yet, at least find a small group or a Bible study that you can meet together with other believers in so you can encourage one another and use your spiritual gifts and fulfill what p- this uh, passage says here. Don't neglect our meeting together, but encourage one another, especially, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Here's next step three. I will view present trials in light of my blessed hope. I will view my present circumstances, my trials that I go through in light of my blessed hope. A.W. Tozer put it like this. Let us be alert to the season in which we are living. It is the season of the blessed hope. It is imperative that we stay fully alert to the times in which we live. All signs today point to this being the season of the blessed hope. All around us, we have the evidence of Jesus' soon return. So, yes, there will be trials and afflictions here in, the, in these days, but take heart. Things aren't simply falling apart, they're really falling into place. God is at work. God is setting things up, getting ready to take us home and to bring his judgment upon the world. And so we need that perspective. We need to look through that lens as we look at life here and understand what we're going through. And then finally, next step, number four, I will be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us more than 50 times to be ready for the return of Christ. What does it mean to be ready? It means to be living in obedience to God's word, to be living in holiness and purity and obedience. It means to be watching and waiting in anticipation of his return. It means to know that our sins are forgiven and that you're gonna go and be with him when he comes back to take his church. And friend, if you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, if you've never put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I wanna encourage you to settle That matter today before you leave the society. Yes, we live in perilous, you are sovereign over them and in control. And we thank you for the blessed hope that we call the rapture. We thank you for these promises and these things that you encourage that you tell us to encourage each other with and to comfort one another with. Lord, fill us with great joy, since we know how the story ends. Lord Jesus, you said as we see these things beginning to take place that we should lift up our eyes because our redemption, our deliverance is drawing near. So thank you for that. Lord, please give us a steadfast hope and an unwavering faith in what you have promised to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said. Amen. Amen. So we're going to transition to communion at this time and hopefully you have uh, one of these. Little communion sets of elements if you didn't get one on on your way in please feel free to get up and go grab one on the tables out in the gathering area you'll need that in just a minute you know before Jesus left the earth and returned to heaven he promised his disciples he was coming again coming for those who believe in him now Jesus didn't give his disciples all the details at that time but he later revealed them to Paul to pass on to us to the church and so as we come to the Lord's table today, I want to remind you of how Jesus described our blessed hope in the rapture. So I'm going to read for you John 14one to 3. This is Jesus' words about what we've been talking about. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, have to- would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. I'm going home. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to take you to be with me, Jesus said. And beloved, I want to remind you that one generation is going to be raptured off the face of the earth to meet Christ in the air to live with him forever. And I think it's a privilege to think that we just might be that generation i believe we are that generation now i'm no prophet so i can't promise that okay but uh if that is the case it's even possible that this could be our last communion together before he comes back for us think about that wouldn't that be cool that that's actually our blessed hope that's a hope that has been given to encourage us and uh, i just want to ask one more time friend are you ready If Christ came back today, would you be ready to meet him? I want to remind you of a few things as we get ready to receive communion. And uh, the first thing is this. This is open communion here at Lake City. That means you don't have to be a member of Lake City Community Church. If you love Christ, we invite you to partake with us. Secondly, communion is for believers only. That means if you haven't trusted Christ yet for your salvation, I want to encourage you not to take communion with us. Unless, and better yet, I want to invite you to receive Christ as Savior and pray and ask him to forgive you. And then by all means, please do. Please receive it with us. And then the third thing is this. I'm going to sit down for a few minutes. I'm going to give you a chance for some prayer, silent meditation, before I come back up. So please hold on to your cup and the bread, and we're going to take it together in unison when when I come back up. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark and he's going to give us some music for our time of meditation and prayer. Please pray with me, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that you have given us to reflect and to remember your death, and your resurrection for us. You're going to the cross to take our sins and place them on yourself that we might be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for this bread that is a picture of your body that was broken and that suffered so much for our, our sins. And we thank you for this cup representing your blood given for the forgiveness of sin. God, please bless this time as we fellowship with you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, I invite you to take the uh, cup and peel off just the uh, clear plastic top layer and grab that wafer there. Hold that there. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it